Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum where experts provide clear, data-driven insight into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. The prescription drug prices are out of control. The drug prices have gone through the roof. And if you look at the same exact drug by the same exact company, made in the same exact box and sold someplace else, sometimes it's a fraction of what we pay in this country. The drug companies, frankly, are getting away with murder. And we want to bring our prices down to what other countries are paying. My name is Andrew Evans, and I'm your host for today's podcast. What you just heard was President Trump in 2017 arguing that Americans pay too much for prescription drugs. Prescription drugs have become a big issue both in the media broadly and here in Washington. We hear news stories regularly about drug prices skyrocketing or about a new drug that is debuting at some astronomical price. The issue of controlling drug prices also has significant traction in Congress, and this issue has become one of the few with bipartisan cooperation. Here to help us think through the debate over high drug prices is Christopher Holt, Director of Healthcare Policy here at the American Action Forum. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. So to understand solutions to the problem of high drug prices, it's perhaps necessary to understand the problem and sort of what's what's going on there. We talk about high drug prices, but I'm wondering if we can really talk about drugs as sort of a singular monolithic entity. Yeah, that's a good place to start. We, we really shouldn't, but, but we do typically talk about them as if they're all the same thing. Um, the, the easiest place to start is probably to think about really two types of, of drugs uh, at a scientific level, right? You have small molecule drugs that are what I think people traditionally think of when, when they think about their allergy medicine or an ibuprofen, right? These are chemical drugs. Um, they're relatively easy to manufacture or at least affordable to manufacture. Um, and, and it's where the bulk of medicine has been for a long time. But then you also have, in the last decade or so, um, the, the emergence of specialty drugs, right? And, and while that's not well-defined, we're talking about uh, biologic drugs, um, more recently, even gene therapy. And these drugs are much more expensive to make. They're much more uh, expensive to develop. Uh, and the processes are, are more complex. So, um, so there's really these two different types of, of products that we're calling drugs. So what do these differences mean for drug pricing? Well, so I, so for one thing, as I mentioned, um, when you think about the specialty drugs like biologics, these, these are there are much more um, they're much more expensive to produce, and and so the manufacturing costs drive a lot of the difference between a two hundred dollar drug and a three thousand dollar drug right, per treatment. A lot of that is just built in trying to produce a, a biologic versus versus a small molecule. Um, but then also within within those two spheres, you have sort of different market effects that are happening, right? So um, in, you know, you, in your traditional brand name drugs, there are brand name drugs that are treating something that no one else is treating, right? There's no competition at all. Um, there are also brand name drugs where there are other brand name drugs that aren't exactly the same, but have similar indications. And so there's some competition there and that can affect price, right? In a downward way. Uh, and then there's also, once a drug goes off patent, you have 
um, you have the generics that come come in, and those obviously can drive price down. Um, but then you also have scenarios where uh, where there's a lot of generics and there's a lot of competition, and prices get lower and lower, and eventually it doesn't become very profitable to even make generics anymore, and you end up with one manufacturer that's making a generic, and we call that a single source generic. That also has pricing implications. Um, in in the biologic space, we're just now starting to see really the emergence of biosimilars, which are comparatively generics. They're they're still they're still distinct, but but they they're sort of like the generic equivalent for a biologic. Um, but we haven't really seen a lot of pricing impact from that yet. Um, take up has been has not been great on, on those. So I'm sensing a, a couple different factors here that just based on what you were saying that can affect pricing. So you talk about manufacturing costs and how these new specialty drugs cost an awful lot. There are a lot of competition effects, whether there's a generic available or, or things like that. Um, are there other factors that affect pricing? Yeah, so federal policies can affect pricing. Uh, we, you know, many, many years ago, we implemented Medicaid best price. And, and basically what that said was, whatever the, the cheapest price that you sell your drug for to anyone, that's what you have to sell it to Medicaid for. And and that had unintended consequences. Uh, because obviously, I'm going to think twice about how low I price my drug for someone. And, and additionally, uh, I it also had, uh, it, it kind of killed charity care, right? Drug manufacturers weren't donating drugs in anymore because in theory that was Medicaid best price. Uh, federal government came along and said, well, we didn't mean to get rid of that. So we'll create this 340B drug program and try to force you know, manufacturers to continue to provide some level of, of charity care. Uh, that's had additional pricing implications. So federal policies can can drive the pricing, um, the pricing decisions. And then another another factor that can drive pricing is market size, right? And, and by that I mean not not so much competition, but uh, the drug is being made for a particular disease. What's the patient population? Uh, what we're seeing a lot of more recently when it comes to uh, to the, like, specialty drugs is a, a lot of newer biologics that are targeting what we call orphan diseases, diseases that that don't affect a lot of people and haven't previously seen medications uh, or or maybe there was a treatment but not a cure, right? And so we're starting to see these drugs that target relatively narrow patient populations um, and, and we're also seeing in some cases that they're curing the conditions. So Novartis has a drug that they just announced is coming to market uh, that they're going to sell at $2.1 million a treatment, which sounds absurd, but it's a cure. So once they've once they've done you know once you've taken it you're you're cured, and it targets um, spinal muscular atrophy, which is a which is a disease that kills m- most children who get it by the age of two years old. And so, you have a a product that can save lives, but but they have to make up all of that R and D and all of that manufacturing and all you know all of their costs in that initial sale and it's only i think about 300 kids a year that it would impact so that's really interesting so it seems like there's a tension here that on the one hand we have these new drugs that cure cure diseases that would otherwise kill children before they turn two for example with this novartis drug that you're talking about Uh, on the other hand it seems like pricing it in that way locks could lock certain people out from having access to the drug, right? So it seems like maybe they're charging more than they need to in order to have maximum access to these drugs. Are, are they making more than they should fairly? 
Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting debate that's that's taking place here in D.C. right now. Um, there, there's a, I think there's gen- definitely a sense among the public and among policymakers that drug manufacturers are getting more than a fair rate of return uh, for their medications. You hear a lot in policy solutions about, well, we we're gonna we'll guarantee a fair rate of return, but but you know what that what that means isn't clearly defined. I, I think one of the things that is missed there is just how risky drug development is. And, and so it's not just a matter of making back the R&D costs, right? It, it's a matter of making enough money back to justify the risk to investors to get the capital up front. And, and so while people will point to how much money drug, drug manufacturers are spending on advertising, executive compensation, you know, all kinds of things, and, and you know, perhaps rightly so, um, my caution would be that we don't inadvertently change the dynamic by, by trying to decide what fair prices are such that we disincentivize um, drug manufacturers from investing in um, new curative treatments, particularly uh, targeted to, to smaller populations and diseases. So you're saying that as we're thinking about policies that um, might help to curtail drug prices, what we want to do is make sure that we're not you know, preventing the development of drugs in the future that could save lives. Yeah, I don't know if that's what I said, but that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're moving towards solutions, um, you know, which I want to I spend a good amount of time thinking about. But could, uh, could you just outline for us at this point, what are, what are sort of the, the problem areas in drug pricing as you see it right now in the United States market? Yeah, I, I don't um, I don't think that problem is necessarily the word I would use, okay. um, yeah, but but challenges there are there are challenges. Um, drug prices are going up. That's not in dispute. How much they're going up? What's driving that? The numbers are all over the place. Um, but I think two areas that that are really driving this conversation right now is what we've talked about for a while now, which is the the biologics and these these specialty drugs aimed at narrow populations. Sometimes they're curative, so they can't make back their money over a lifetime of maintenance, right? Um, but then but then also I, I mentioned those single source generics that uh, where there's one generic company producing a drug and, and you'll see incidents like this. A lot of people are familiar with the Martin Shkreli story probably mostly because of his Wu-Tang Clan album. Uh, but but he, that's an example of someone who came in and bought Touring Pharmaceuticals, which was just a generic manufacturer. They were producing a drug for about $5 a dose, and no one else was making it. And he ratcheted that price up, I think, up to $100 a dose. Uh, and there's a, it takes, there's a lag time if you want to bring a, someone else to bring that drug to market, right? And so he had a monopoly, and he was able to abuse it. Um, so that's a second sort of place where I think we've, we've seen several examples of that. Uh, so those are maybe two challenges that I would focus on. Let's talk about some solutions now. You know, various people have, have proposed different ideas, you know, whether at the federal level or the state level. Um, one idea that, that people have been proposing is having the federal government negotiate drug prices. What are the, you know, what do you think of that? What are the benefits? What are the drawbacks of that? Yeah, so so um, I think it's it's important to step back a little bit and understand exactly what people are talking about when they say that. And I think a lot of people who are talking about that don't necessarily understand what they mean when they say that. Um, so when we talk about the, the having the the government or particularly the Secretary of Health and Human Services negotiate drug prices, uh, what we're what we're actually talking for, for Medicare, right? What we're actually talking about is the Medicare Part D program. Um, and so this is a benefit that was established. It was, it was enacted in two thousand and three. It was established in two thousand and 
2006 that provides um, drug drug plans for seniors to get their over-the-counter medication, right? The prescription drugs. And the it's sort of, there's this confusion where people think, oh, well, there's no negotiation happening because the secretary is not allowed to negotiate. But in reality, there's a lot of negotiation that happens in Part D between the drug plan sponsors, the uh, pharmacy benefit managers, the drug manufacturers, wholesalers, right? There's, there's all these negotiations that are going on for the prices uh, and, and those are working quite well. And, and so, but what, but what happened when we passed that law, there was a provision that we call the non-interference clause that specifically said the secretary couldn't interfere in those negotiations. Uh, and now the argument is, well, actually, if we let the secretary get involved, the secretary could negotiate on behalf of all the Medicare beneficiaries, whereas the plans just have the people who are enrolled in their specific plan. Um, the, the problem with that is that for the secretary to do that and to have any actual leverage, um, the secretary would have to be able to say no to drugs. The, the secretary would have to be able to um, to say, well, if you don't give me this rate, I'm not going to put your, I'm going to put a different drug in my preferred tier one space and I'm going to charge more for your drug. I'm going I'm to charge my beneficiaries more when they, when they buy this drug. And, uh, and that happens in the Part D plans right now, but there are about 23 plans in every rating area uh, for beneficiaries to choose between. So if a, if a plan doesn't have the drug that you want on, on a good tier or doesn't have it at all, you can sign up for a different plan. But for the secretary to do that, we would just have one plan, one formulary. Um, and so the Congressional Budget Office has, has written numerous times that in the absence of some sort of formulary and a willingness to limit Medicare beneficiaries' access to drugs, the, the secretary is not going to be able to get anything for out of their negotiation, right? They have no leverage. Uh, and, and traditionally, um, no one's been that interested in creating a formula. So um, so that's that's kind of the, the problem with, with that, right? Is that what happens in other countries like Britain? Do they just refuse to offer certain drugs? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in other other countries um, have access to much fewer uh, much fewer drugs and they and they get newer drugs later uh, than the US does because uh, governments are more willing to just say, well, we're not going to we're not going to cover that. The, the one thing that is coming up now, I think that the left is kind of recognizing, oh, yeah, um, the secretary really probably doesn't have any leverage here. And so there have been new proposals of pairing, quote unquote, negotiation with some sort of stick, right, that the, that the secretary can use to, to force uh, drug companies to give them better deals. And so we've heard about compulsory licensure, which which would basically be like the secretary goes and says, hey, I'm going to negotiate this, this drug with you. Um, I want this this price. Drug company says, no, I want this price. They can't reach an agreement. And then the secretary says, okay, well, in that case, I'm going to take your patents and give them to someone else and have them make the drug for me at this, at this, uh, at this rate. So that's, that's what sort of the progressive caucus in, in the house right now really wants. Um, an, an alternative that's been floated by other Democrats is something called arbitration where, uh, the, the secretary and the, and the drug manufacturer would negotiate, and if they couldn't reach an agreement, they would go to some sort of third-party arbiter, and the, and the arbiter would pick between their two proposed prices. Um, that all that's been unacceptable to a lot of Democrats, and so um, we we've heard rumblings that um, legislation that uh, Nancy Pelosi is working on might set the arbiter as the Government Accountability Office. So in that scenario, the, so is the government just arbiting itself? Right. So in that scenario, <laughs> the, the secretary would say, "Hey, I want this price," and the drug manufacturer would say, I'll give you this price. And then the secretary said, well, let's ask this government agency which price is is reasonable. That doesn't really sound like negotiation. No, no, it doesn't. 
That sounds like government price setting. That yeah, no, it, yeah. Yes, that's exactly what it sounds like. So the Trump administration has, you know, seems to have some ideas as well. Uh, they introduced recently a rebate rule, um, which seems rather technical in certain ways. They also introduced this International Pricing Index, IPI, mm-hmm. idea that would, you know, basically peg our, the price of our drugs to the to the prices in, in an index of other countries. Yep. You know, what, what's going on there? What are those ideas? So let's start with the rebate rule. Uh, in, in that case... List prices are, are pretty high and, and are increasing relatively quickly. Net prices are lower. They're increasing, but they're increasing at a lower rate. Um, and so one of the things when we talk about this negotiation that's happening, especially in Part D, is that pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs, are negotiating on behalf of insurance plans with, with drug manufacturers for these drugs. And so you might have a very high list price, but then the PBM will negotiate, let, let's say it's a $200 drug, and the, and the PBM negotiates a $100 rebate. So... For all accounts and purposes, the pharmaceutical company is selling the drug for $100, okay? Now, what happens to that extra $100 is a little unclear, right? Because these are private companies and these are private arrangements and private contracts. Um, But some of that is being kept by the PBM. Uh, A lot of that is going to the plan sponsor. And and what we're told and, and what we see is that the plan sponsors then use that that rebate to lower premiums overall. So they, they keep premiums low by, by pocketing that rebate. But if you're a beneficiary, when you go to the pharmacy counter, your copay, your coinsurance, your deductible is based on list price. So, th- so the fact that this $100 benefit isn't, isn't really benefiting you directly except in a, a lower premium. For most beneficiaries, that's fine. But if you're on a particularly high-cost drug with a, with a large out-of-pocket cost, um, then, then you are, are getting hurt by that arrangement. And so what the, what the administration has proposed is that those rebates would, would be uh, disallowed unless they went directly to the beneficiary at the point of sale. And so... Um, that you know the, the the plan sponsors and um, and a lot of Democrats in Congress have expressed concern that this would lead to increased premiums for Part D plans, and it might. Uh, that's not unreasonable. Uh, although I would say there's a lot of there's a lot of incentive to plans to keep their premiums as low as possible because that's how they compete for beneficiaries. Uh, but certainly, you could see premiums go up. Um, you could see premiums go up several dollars a month uh, for beneficiaries. So, so the net of that rule is that you could minorly dis- you could you could increase premiums for a lot of people a little bit, and you could dramatically bring down out of pocket costs for a few people a lot, which is kind of what insurance is supposed to do. So. Sure. Yeah. What about the this international pricing index idea? Yeah. So, so the IPI proposal is uh, a little more concerning. Uh, it it basically what they do is, is they create a list of countries, and I don't know that they're entirely settled on what those countries will be. They had proposed some, uh, and and they'll basically say we'll pay, you know, what these countries pay on average plus an amount, and that's all we'll pay for these drugs. Uh, the and the idea they're sort of trying to have it both both ways because the idea is that um, as President Trump said, um, we we don't want you know we feel like we're being taken advantage of. Other countries are paying a lot less, and we're paying a lot more, and we're we're sort of subsidizing other countries, and and that's true. That that's a real problem. Um, and so and so they, they suggest this as a way of forcing the other countries to pay more because the idea is that, well, the pharmaceutical companies just aren't negotiating hard enough. And if they if they're only going to get so much more 
from the U.S. than what they're getting from all these other countries, then they'll have to get more from these other countries, right? At the same time, they're saying that this proposal could save money because we'll lower how much we're paying. That only works if countries don't um, <laughs> increase what they're paying. So they're kind of trying to have it yeah. both ways there. Um, but there's there's also just a, a problem with, you know, which countries you're referencing because, you know, these aren't by and large um, the same kind of drug market spaces. These are often countries that just sort of set prices or refuse to cover drugs. So in a number of cases, um, the drugs just aren't available in all the countries that were that were suggested in the index. And so how do you how do you calculate that when half of your index isn't even covering this drug? Um, and, and, and do we want to end up in a situation where we don't have access to all of these drugs? So would you say that that's basically importing price controls from these other countries? Yeah, and and more than that, um, a lot of the countries that are in the index are have their own um, indexes that they're using. And so <laughs> you can trace this back and see a lot of countries are sort of referencing Slovakia, which isn't really a good economic comparable to the United States, right? What about the sort of underlying premise of that? of this international pricing index proposal, the premise seems to be that the United States is paying an awful lot more than other countries and is effectively subsidizing their access to and use of these drugs because we are funding the majority of R&D costs for these drug companies. That seems true. Yeah, that I mean, that's that is a that is true. That's a fair complaint. And it is a it is a frustrating policy situation that we're in. Is is basically just the reality. I just, of I'm that. not. I just don't believe that IPI is is going to fix that. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. So, what about um, this idea? You know, Florida just passed a rule or a, passed a law that would allow reimportation of drugs from Canada. Um, you know, again, sort of keying off the same idea that other countries are paying a lot less for drugs, and if we bring in those drugs, then we can pay less for them as well. You know. It seems to make sense on the surface. What are the problems? What are the potential benefits of this? Yeah, so, so there's a. This is not by any means a new idea, um, and it and it's one that has had support um, among sort of a variety of of people on all sides of the political spectrum. Um, Senator McCain was very supportive of the idea of allowing importation of drugs from Canada. Um, traditionally, the concern has been one of safety because once a drug leaves the U.S. supply chain, it's no longer its safety can no longer be. Um, assured by FDA. And so, uh, so there's always been some concern about like, what are the drugs that are coming back? Actually, the drugs that they say they are, um, what's happened to them in the meantime, that kind of thing. Um, I think that particular concern is a little less persuasive than it has been in the past. I, I don't know if it's less accurate, but it's certainly, or, or, or less uh, valid, but it, it's certainly less persuasive. Um, I think the other issue, though, is, is simply that it's not clear that it will work because it this what we're operating on the assumption is that there's an unlimited supply of drugs in Canada such that they can provide for all of their need and sell drugs back to us at their prices. And at some point, you can imagine that pharmaceutical companies are, are not going to be interested in shipping excess quantity to Canada for reimportation to the United States, uh, which could lead to drug shortages for, for patients in Canada. Um, there's a lot of reason to think that the Canadian government might intervene to, to prevent something like that from happening. It's just not, it's just not clear that, um, that all, of the, all of the actors here would go along with this sort of game. And again, it's a de facto way of just setting prices. Like we're, we're basically just saying, okay, we think Canadian prices are what we want to pay, so we'll just buy our drugs from Canada. 
Yeah, so that, I mean, Canada has no reason to buy more drugs than it needs, right? right. In fact, um, and and I don't think this is a an unreasonable concern. Senator Sanders actually has language in his proposal on importation to to prohibit drug companies from limiting in any way the number of drugs that can be sold to a country that reimports the United States. So, so seem to recognize that actually why would a drug company do this and, and why would another country participate in that? So sort of thinking about sort of this. I, I actually want yeah, one more thing ahead. on that point, right? Um, under current law, the Secretary of, of Health and Human Services can allow importation of drugs from Canada. They could just do it. Uh, no secretary ever has. They have to certify that they think it's safe. Uh, and to this to this point, they've been unwilling to. The, the law that was passed in Florida and a similar law, I think, in Vermont, um, both require the secretary to act for, for them to become valid. The Secretary of Health and Human Services yeah, to would act. Have to, would have to approve the importation proposal. Is Canada really the fear here or would it, would it be drugs coming out of India or China that is the greater fear? I mean, for, for safety? For safety, yeah. Well, um, it, yeah, I, I mean, so far, so far, these proposals are, are relatively limited as far where they would let importation from. But you know, there's no there's no guarantee that it's the drug that's that the drug that's being sold is actually what it says it is. Right. You can have bad actors come in and, and set up a, a shop and you know, sell whatever. So sure, that makes sense. So just sort of thinking about broadly the solution, if you will, to high drug prices. Um, insofar as there is one, and maybe maybe in a sense there's not, but uh, what what most fundamentally drives down drug prices, and how should we then conceptualize it? Well, at, at a very at a very basic economic level, when you have increasing prices and increasing demand, you need increasing supply and increasing competition in order to limit price. I mean, I mean that that at a very basic level should be the objective, and, and I think one thing we need to be very careful about in the policy space is doing things that end up limiting the the number of drugs that are coming to market. So Chris, here at the end of the show, we like to do something that's a bit more personable so we can get to know you a little bit more. I know you're an avid reader. How many books have you read this year? Oh, wow. Um, I, I have read 25 books so far this year. And of those books, what's the best book you've read? best book i've read the best uh fiction sure yeah sure um i read a book that no one has ever heard of called the book of strange new things which is a really weird sci-fi book about this company that figures out how to build a uh uh, they, they get to some alien planet and they're building a base and they're having problems with the natives and the natives like become friends with the chaplain to the base but then the chaplain dies and the natives stop giving them food and so they have to go back to earth and find someone to come be a missionary to the natives in order to like keep the food supply it's just a very very strange book but it it is uh it's engrossing i have my wife read it too she doesn't like science fiction but she couldn't put it down it's it's very very interesting interesting book very good christopher holt. Author. <laughs> christopher holt healthcare expert sci-fi reader thanks very much for coming on chris we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. I'd also like to encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes um, from this episode and also follow us on social media to hear more about AAF.